Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so that you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. I'm your host, Patrick Beeman. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast. Today we have Dustin Williams from Online MedEd. He is a board-certified internal medicine doc. He did his undergrad at Yale and went to Tulane for medical school where he is currently the clerkship director for Tulane students in the LEAD curriculum and a faculty member for the Baton Rouge General Internal Medicine Residency Program. He is the lead educator for online MedEd aimed at changing how medical education is approached, how medical schools deliver it, and how students learn it. With a plethora of online videos, a question bank, and a dedicated flashcard app for smartphones, online MedEd is making learning medicine easier, faster, and more fun. Dustin, before we kind of launch into the formal aspects of this and get to the usual segments for this show, two questions. One, would you say online MedEd is trying to make medical education great again? Medical education is actually uh, this thing that has existed for a while now. And it used to be learn a bunch of stuff, become a great doctor. And it seems that we've learned too much as a scientific community to be like, learn it all, be a great doctor. So medical education has shifted significantly from learn a bunch of stuff to the core competencies that people have come out with, be a great person, be a great leader, be a great communicator, and by the way, know some stuff. And in doing that, they've basically said, well, you have this four-year curriculum, which has always worked so far, so might as well just keep doing what we've always done. And obviously that doesn't work. So what online med ed is doing is essentially taking, let's take the piece where you have to learn a bunch of stuff and teach it to you in a way that you learn that in a way that'll stick and do it faster and more efficiently than it has been done. So you've got more time to do the stuff that is more than medical knowledge. And you're not talking about playing Xbox specifically there, but you might be. Well, part, well, actually, yes. So if you've got enough time to be a great person and be a great leader and you learn all the medical knowledge to pass those tests, you got more free time. So you actually have an opportunity to recharge your soul. And if Xbox is the way you do it, then yeah, actually, you might be able to play a little bit more. Fair enough. All right. I want to ask now, though, what's with the cat? Online meted, what's with the cat? 
Oh, should I reveal the secret to everybody? Um, this the, is an uh, exclusive inside the board's uh, yeah, revelation. I, yes, you should. The cat originally, um, Justin Kahn, is the a guy who created a, a calendar called Kiko. No one knows what Kiko is, but uh, he also started Justin.tv, which sold to Amazon for a billion dollars about three years ago. Lucky. And when, yeah, lucky guy. And uh, <laughs> when he had Kiko, I made the suggestion of, well, um, you should have a cat that climbs over the top of Kiko and goes, Kiko, because Kiko means hello. And he thought that was a stupid idea. So I decided back in 2005 that if I ever had a company, I would have a cat and it would come over the top of the, the title and say Kiko. So back when this was uh, medical education online in its very infancy, I had, I made a little flash app where this cat came over the top, but the cat came from my own cat, Kimber. And in the beginning, Kimber is a fluffy cat and the online med ed cat did not have a stethoscope or a white coat. She was just a fluffy version of Kimber, my own cat. And since then it's been carved down to Dr. Cat and the, the web design guy said that fluffy's out. So had to be thin and trim. So the cat came from this, uh, my own ownership of Kimber. And also from this uh, way back in the day, this rivalry between one of my best friends and myself saying that uh, the cat mascot is stupid. I thought it was awesome. Well, sometimes you have to make those types of executive decisions. And I like the cat. I think it's cool. I, I would like to see more animations, though, of the cat. I'd like to hear his voice um, or her voice. Kimber, I suppose, is that a it's a girl cat, I imagine. It is. And I cannot wait for this to come out because uh, Jamie's like, oh, the cat. I'm like, more cat, more cat. And Jamie's like, no, not cat, more cat. I'm sure there's a bunch of dog people out there who may not like the cat so much, but I definitely want to see more animations of the cat. I can't wait to play this podcast. It's going to be awesome. Well, I am so glad that we're on the same page with this. Like, <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I'm going to put you in the hot seat uh, right now, okay? Yep. Um, this, this will be fun. It's like uh, pimping a resident, except you're an attending in a field for which I am uh, not an expert. So <laughs> it's a unique <laughs> position for me. I've been doing a question of the day or a few questions with each of these shows. And uh, today we'll take one from the USMLE 2016 content outline and sample items. So are you ready? Ready. So a 37-year-old man with type 1 diabetes mellitus comes to the physician for a routine examination. His only medication is insulin. His pulse is 72 beats per minute. Respirations are 12. And blood pressure is 138 over 88 millimeters of mercury. Fundoscopic examination shows microaneurysms and hemorrhages. Sensation to vibration and light touch is decreased over the lower extremities. His serum creatinine concentration is 1.6 milligrams per deciliter, and a 24-hour urine collection shows 550 milligrams of protein. Treatment with which of the following is most likely to slow progression of this patient's renal disease? A. Atenolol B. Clonidine C. Hydralazine D. Hydrochlorothiazide or E. Lisinopril All right. That's an easy one. I'm not going to give the answer away. I'm going to go ahead and go through. So this is actually how I attack these questions. And I like to talk through that because I think that's more important. Yeah, this is a pretty obvious one to me. So what I always do first is I actually look at the question, which is which is likely to you know decrease the risk of progression of the kidney disease and then look at the answers. And it's a beta blocker. It's a medication you should never use, clonidine. Hydralazine, it's kind of like the backup drug, but might be used in heart failure. Hydrochlorothiazide, which is a 
thiazide diuretic that you can't use in chronic kidney disease, and then lisinopril. And so without even looking at the, at the question, the answer is lisinopril because beta blockers don't do that. Clonidine you never use. Hydralazine is only used in heart failure, and hydrochlorothiazide would actually be contraindicated in chronic kidney disease. So the answer is lisinopril. But then I go back and actually read the question just to make sure I'm right, and it's about diabetes, right? The dude's got type 1 diabetes, he's on insulin, and then he's got retinopathy, neuropathy, and nephropathy, and so it's like, oh yeah, confirmed. Got it. Yeah, this is actually how I coach the residents to take their board exams as well. Read the question first, read the answers next, and then actually read the question because chances are you're going to be able to zero in on the things that actually matter. Because as you read that question to me, I was like, oh, shit, this is going to be an eye question. Oh, well, well, maybe it's going to be a neuropathy question. Oh, good. It's a kidney question. That's easy. So I think that's uh, excellent because not to toot my own horn, but I thought this was an easy question, too. And I'm an OBGYN. But the point, <laughs> I think, is every question on the boards is going to need to satisfy the so-called cover the answers test. You should be able to come up with what the correct answer is going to be without having to look at the answer choices. And, and you as an internal medicine man probably listen to all that and you're like, oh man, I got to make sure this patient's on lisinopril since ACE inhibitors are known to slow progression of renal disease amongst diabetics. And I think in general, training one's mind to think in that way probably will prove valuable on actual board examinations, regardless of level, internal medicine attendings or newly graduated residents taking their uh, written boards or step two, the IM shelf, whatever it might be. All right, let's do another. Okay. I don't want them to be too easy. Well, hopefully my internal medicine board certifiedness can get through a USMLE step two question. <laughs> and more importantly, hopefully the guy who's writing the, the uh, you know, the entire online course for students to practice will get this right. Right. Otherwise, I might question my ability to do this, but. Well, we can <laughs> edit it out. Um. <laughs> <laughs> don't tell them that. <laughs> right. Well, we'll also edit that out. Maybe we'll leave it in just for uh, the personality it communicates. Here's one. A 47-year-old woman comes to the physician for a routine health maintenance examination. She feels well and has no history of serious illness. Her mother, brother, and sister have hypertension. The patient's pulse is 84 beats per minute and blood pressure is 138 over 85. Examination shows no other abnormalities. The most appropriate recommendation is decreased intake of which of the following? A. Calcium. B. Carbohydrates. C, potassium, D, protein, or E, sodium? If you asked me that question, I would actually have no idea based on the question itself. Decrease of which of the following is not good for somebody who's approaching menopause. So I'm going to go, I'm going to break it down like this and hit one at a time. Intake of calcium and vitamin D is recommended for women as they approach menopause. So I'd want to increase calcium. So that one's out. Carbohydrates, man, that's probably going to be the answer because why would you want to increase carb intake? I mean, please get fatter and have diabetes. So I'm going to hang on to that one. Okay. Potassium, they'd have to give me something in the question about hyperkalemia or maybe they're on some medication that would increase potassium like an ACE inhibitor. So I'm going to take that one out. Decreasing protein would maybe help with kidney stones, but most of the time 
increased ingestion of protein would be good. They don't have anything about a creatinine in here. Sodium, that would be the other one I'd consider. You wouldn't certainly want to increase sodium intake, and that might lead to hypertension. So I think this is not an obesity question, but this is mostly like, oh, hey, family history of hypertension, you're almost hypertensive. So um, I'm going to say decrease in sodium is the right answer. You are right. See, that internal medicine board uh, certification paid off. Yes, indeed. <laughs> I, was, I was actually a little nervous about that one. That was actually a 50-50 toss-up. And this is actually something I talked to you residents about as well, right? Like I got it down to between two of them, and then I kind of went with my gut because it's a hypertension question, sodium, not a diabetes question, carbs. Yeah, yeah. One thing I think a lot of people who are naturally um, good test takers or who have trained themselves to become good multiple-choice question answerers, they recognize that the writers who put these things together are usually going to pick one clear-cut single best answer, and then there's going to naturally be another answer that's so-called most attractive in terms of the wrong answers, the most attractive distractor, if you will. And oftentimes, that's the one that's going to be picked second most by examinees who didn't um, score the the answer that is uh, keyed as correct. And I think in this instance, this is a pretty clear-cut case of that. Sodium and carbohydrates are probably the, the two big candidate answers, but the thing that puts you over the top for selecting sodium was all the verbiage within the vignette about risk of hypertension, pre-hypertensive vital signs, et cetera, correct? That's exactly it. Yeah, they're, they're called distractors, actually, and, and a good test writer starts with an educational objective, thing they want you to test you on, and this is, in this case, risk for hypertension. They write the right answer, which is sodium, and then actually every other answer is supposed to be a pretty decent distractor. That way they can actually mold the vignette to any of the other answers. This one was a particular poor question because I was able to eliminate calcium, potassium, protein pretty easily. But carbs is in there. They just changed a little bit. Hey, family history diabetes, her A1C is 6.4. You know, not quite diabetic yet. What would you do? I mean, the whole the answer becomes very clearly different if the vignette changes just a little bit. Yeah, excellent. All right, let's do one more because uh, I think this uh, exercise is pretty instructive. And this is fun for me. <laughs> so much, e so much easier to give questions and ask them than it is to answer them and uh, have to write. Sure is. A 52-year-old woman comes to the physician because of a three-month history of diarrhea and intermittent abdominal pain that radiates to her back. The pain is exacerbated by eating. She describes her stools as greasy, foul-smelling, and difficult to flush. She has had 4.5 kilograms of weight loss during the past four months. She has a history of chronic alcohol abuse. Examination shows mild epigastric tenderness. An x-ray of the abdomen shows calcifications in the epigastrium. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? A, bacterial overgrowth. B, celiac disease. C, lactose intolerance. D, malabsorption of bile salts. E, pancreatic insufficiency. All right. So again, I would start with the question, bacterial overgrowth. I think they're going with C. diff there, um, celiac disease, lactose intolerance, pancreatic insufficiency, and bile salts. So if I was going to go for bacterial overgrowth, I'd look for a recent history of antibiotics, and it would be nasty diarrhea that's either watery or bloody. It's definitely not that. Um, celiac disease, I coach people. It's almost always the right answer on the test because our celiac disease is hot right now. Um, Celiac disease is going to be watery diarrhea over a long time and um, maybe some sort of rash. They give you a picture of a rash. That's it. I'm gonna, I can't eliminate that one right off the bat, so hold on to that. 
lactose intolerance is going to be foul-smelling stools when you eat dairy. If you don't eat dairy, it gets better, so that's out. Pancreatic insufficiency, I think this is definitely going to be the right answer. And this is actually why I would read the question and the answer choices first. I was like fervently scribbling down as you as you spoke. And I was like, it could be this, it could be that, it could be the other thing. And um, let me guess, you just do that first. So as I was writing down, I heard three months of diarrhea, great. Um, pain exacerbated by eating, that's could be gallbladder or peptic ulcer disease. Stool is greasy and foul smelling, that's just some sort of absorption thing. So it still could be gallbladder disease. And then came the alcoholism and the calcifications, and I was like, oh, it's pancreas. So it is pancreatic insufficiency in my book, and I can see that because of the alcohol consumption and the calcifications of the pancreas. But if I were just reading the questions start to finish, I'd be like, oh, my God, all, all these things are running through my head. And so I'm going to pick pancreatic insufficiency. Can't really rule out bile salt absorption. I think they're going with gallbladder pathology there, or maybe some sort of malignancy causing obstructive jaundice, but they'd have to give us some jaundice in the vignette, so that's out also. We'll go with pancreatic insufficiency. And you are correct. I think that's uh, another good way to approach it. A few things. Uh, the first answer choice you said, bacterial overgrowth, I think they're probably going for something like C. diff. Yep. Now, I think that's important for students to recognize that oftentimes there are lots of synonyms or similar terms for which uh, you know an answer could be um, C. diff, bacterial overgrowth, pseudomembranous colitis, you know, some terms that are all integrally associated. And you really do have to ask yourself, what exactly do they mean? Because what's written might not be exactly what they mean in terms of how you need to answer the question. And then by concluding that the bacterial overgrowth that they're stating here is, is likely C. diff, um, you were able to eliminate that as an answer choice by some of the the pertinent positives and negatives within the vignette. And then having that confidence to say, celiac disease, no, if they were asking me that, I should expect to see classic findings related to celiac and not see some other classic findings for other diseases that serve as answer choices. The things that all highlight the pancreatic issue, I think, are the the diarrhea, the abdominal pain radiating to the back, exacerbation with eating, um, the malabsorptive diarrhea, the weight loss, the chronic alcohol abuse, <laughs> epigastric tenderness, and um, calcifications in the epigastrium on an abdominal x-ray. I mean, not all the board exam questions are going to give you all the risk factors and all the pertinent positives you need, but um, you should be able to tick off a list of things that support your answer and then go with the answer that has the most support if you're doing a process of elimination. That is actually the most important thing about the step two, where they're not allowed to give you curveballs, right? Step two is all about classic illness scripts. So they're not going to give you two things that go with lactose intolerance and three things that go with pancreatic insufficiency and make you choose. At board certification level, they will do that stuff, right? They'll throw in a couple things in there that will distract you away. But for USMLE step two, they, they, they're not testing how well you know everything about disease. So usually there are no curveballs. So if you find a lot of stuff that points to one direction and one thing that doesn't, the thing that you think points away is probably a misinterpretation on your part. They don't throw curveballs at you on step two. 
What advice would you have for a student who is um, stuck on a question? They've spent three minutes looking at one uh, vignette, one question on their USMLE Step 2 or Comlex Level 2, and something just doesn't fit. They can't quite commit to pancreatic insufficiency over um, malabsorption of bile salts. How would you counsel them they should approach questions where they're, they're kind of stuck? They've already made an error spending three minutes on that question. Good. I was hoping but, you'd say that. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you look at it and you're like, uh, I got my answer, boom, done, move on. If you're like, I am not sure about one or two of these, pick one of them because you got it down to a 50-50 chance, just like that carbs and sodium business, flag it, get through your block, and then come back to the question you weren't sure on. That way you don't waste a bunch of time. I think a lot of students feel like they have to answer the question right there and they get stuck and they go back and forth and they ruminate. But really, 50-50 shots pretty good. That's like, you know, I mean, it's not better than one out of five. And then you can let your subconscious process that information as you move forward. And if you come back to it at the very end and you're really stuck, 50-50 is pretty good on one question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's good practical advice. So, all right, let's move on. I want to know a little bit more about uh, Dustin Williams. So tell me a little bit about your medical school journey. Ooh, well, if you'd like to know more, the beginning of the intern guide has a fantastic explanation of how I hated medical school. Uh, a little more insider, I went to Yale and I uh, par- majored in partying. I came out, I went in a super nerd and came out a pretty nice guy, but along the way, I, um, I partied a little bit too hard, so couldn't get into medical school. I had to apply three times to get in, and eventually Tulane said yes. So I uh, was there. And kept you on as uh, faculty. (laughs) Yeah, it turns out I proved myself when I got there. So um, you can imagine post-Katrina New Orleans was not the best place to be in the way of resources. So my medical school experience was very much deficient, absent. And so what happened was that I found myself, and I ran the note service, I actually got um, the two-lane to record videos so people can watch them from home, you know, trying to develop all this stuff for, for medical students. And what I found was that medical school sucks. And I really believe this now that students succeed despite a medical school, not because of. Now, I mean, Tulane is a wonderful place to train and they actually they opened it up and every, any, anything that a student could do to make it better, they absolutely accepted. Team EdWeb, I helped build and that's actually used now. Students built the online resource that faculty upload to because they're just, hey, like everyone can contribute. Post-Katrina New Orleans was a great place to be to help people because literally as a student, if I didn't show up to a clinic, person didn't get healthcare. But at the same time, what I realized was that people who teach medical students have never been trained to teach medical students. And so they just keep teaching the way they've taught and the way they've been taught. And usually that means our blocks of PowerPoint slides with the lights off. So I spend a lot of time playing um, flash games on my laptop, uh, pretending to take notes and (laughs) looking at my email and trying to find anything else to do. And then eventually I got to clinical medicine and I was like, we made it through first two years. Okay, no big deal. And then it happened again. And the thing that happened to me that made the, the switch flip was I was at my uh, OBGYN rotation and we came in for a lecture on contraception. 
And I was like, okay, this is a pretty good lecture, right? Like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there and maybe there's some new stuff. I walked in saying, if, ever, if I'm ever going to prescribe contraception, it's going to be yes. At the time, there wasn't all this cool stuff like the rings and yada, yada, yada. So I, and the only reason why I knew about Yaz was because it was a commercial on TV. <laughs> and then two hours later, I walked out thinking, if I'm ever going to prescribe contraception, it's going to be Yaz because that's the only thing I still know. The dude spent two hours going through the difference between progestin and estrogen in each of the different pills in the time window where a, a woman could miss the dose and it would still be okay. And the answer on the shelf was OCPs, right? Two hours of all this intricate detail. Now, the point was, he was a reproductive endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. And to him, that was relevant. That was awesome. He knew all that stuff. So the medical student who was not going to be an OBGYN, I wanted to know ring, pills, condom, IUD. And IODs weren't really around that popular that much at that point. And so the medical school experience was very angering. I gained 30 pounds the wrong way. <laughs> I had a high blood pressure. And it was just, I, I spent most of my time trying to figure out how I'm supposed to learn the stuff I'm supposed to learn rather than actually learning it. Mm. That's, uh, that's striking. So you have a more, I guess, expansive kind of um, take on this or more personal story. And in, in you said the intern handbook. Is that available mm -hmm. on onlinemeded.org? Yeah, onlinemeded.org slash store or the merch page from the main page. The intern guide is supposed to be for people entering um, into intern year, but really it's designed for internal medicine. But the first two chapters is about life, philosophy, um, studying, and then how to take care of people, how to be a great person. And then the back half of the books, like heart failure, approach to chest pain, stuff that's really relevant to medicine people. Okay. So like most of the people I've uh, had on this uh, show, it, it sounds like then the seedbed for online med ed for you was your own experience. I mean, that makes sense. We try to do the things and dedicate our time to what solves our own pain points and those we share with others. So you're sitting in that uh, contraception lecture. You come out of it. Where does uh, online med ed develop from there? Um, oh, it's uh, going to be a really long question, so I'll try to give the... Uh... Highlights, right? Yeah. So it turns out that I have always had the talent of categorizing, organizing, and re-explaining something I've learned. I did it as a paramedic. I taught an EMT class at Yale. I um, took a bartending and developed my own class, which is a joke class. We poured water bo bottles of water into glasses in the basement of my dorm. But you know, I've always taken what I've learned and taught it to someone else. And so what had happened in medical school because some labs just didn't have a PhD in histology. I was part of the OWL Club, which is sort of Society for Academic Excellence uh, at Tulane. And I would host these sessions where I would teach the stuff that I had learned from my PhD in my lab to people who didn't have someone to help them. And what I found was that People showed up, like my peers, right? Exactly the same level as me, the same year, and I didn't have any special training. But 30, 40 kids would show up to try to get a head start or try to learn what they couldn't. And so I knew there was a need already. And then I had done like the note service and I, I wrote the T1 guide, which was the answer to all the lecture objectives in a in paper tome form. When I finally got to that OBGYN lecture, I said, you know, I've been doing all this stuff. Like I, I can do this better, you know, 
totally arrogant, right? Like how hard could teaching be? <laughs> so I, <laughs> I grabbed a camera and a light set from a guy I knew at the Superdome who does audiovisual. And I just set up a whiteboard in my bedroom. My girlfriend at the time was the cameraman. And I got to filming. And oh my God, was it awful. I watched those videos like a year later and I, the, it was like factually deficient. It was in 320p. I moved around like an idiot. And sometimes I was so boring that she would actually fall asleep and I'd be over, <laughs> over on the right side of the board and the camera would still on, be on the left and I'm talking. And then she was like, oh, I got to do that one again. <laughs> I fell asleep. So <laughs> that's how I got started. I was just like, hey, you know what? Uh, I can do this better. I couldn't, obviously, but with um, a lot of practice, I did get better, and I had had good mentors. Uh, Chad Miller was the protege of Jeff Weiss. Chad Miller was the internal medicine clerkship director before he left for Washington St. Louis as a dean, and Jeff Weiss is now the program director at Tulane, and he's actually the DIO there, too. And so these guys are known for their excellence in medical education. So I, I took a few classes with them. I, I practiced uh, in, in live with them, and I kept doing the videos. And people showed up, and my own perspective is those videos absolutely sucked. But without telling anybody they existed and without putting up any posts or advertising, people managed to find them. And they're like, these are awesome, which is terribly ironic because they were awful. But what it meant was that my terrible lectures that I filmed in my bedroom that were so boring that made my girlfriend fall asleep were better than what people were getting. And so I, um, I just kept doing it. And after 10,000 hours, right, there's like 225 topics we've got. I've done each of them three times now, and it's about eight hours a piece. So I put in a lot of time in this, and they got better. And I was just doing this as a hobby, right? Like on the side, I was just kind of putting some stuff together. And while I was studying, I had organized my notes, and I was kind of just retelling what I thought I had learned. And then Jamie was like, hey, man, I, uh, I want to do a startup. And Jamie was working for the state of Texas doing some epidemiology data analysis on trauma and drowning. And he saw his ceiling at right there. You know, he wasn't going to go for it. <laughs> and he's like, he's, and Jamie's brilliant, man. He, he should have gone to medical school, but he didn't. Well, you said he's brilliant. It sounds like he, <laughs> he yeah. made the right choice. <laughs> yes, he did. Right. Yeah, right. Yes. He did not go to medical school. Well done, sir. And so, and, but like, and so he was like, man, you know, I want to do a startup. So basically I told him, you know, I, I, I'm doing this for free. Like, I, I want this to be for people to learn medicine. And he said, fine. And Jamie ended up making it into a company, right? He took my, um, you know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll do a video or my father would fly down and from, from Connecticut. And, and while I was in residency, my, you know, free weeks, we'd spend video, videotaping to, no, man, let's make all the resources out there. Let's beat everybody. Because obviously we do this better now. At this point, I was good. And all we need to do is create the resources for people and they're going to show up. I, I made it an awesome hobby, putting the videos online, and uh, Jamie made it into a real company where we now have people working for us, and you know, there are people. We have like fifty thousand people, active registered users on on the site each month, and he's really turned it into something amazing. Whereas I'm just the guy who talks well in front of a camera. <laughs> After much practice, too. But mm -hmm. so you said you've uh, pretty much gone through and done these lectures three times, roughly, uh, for each of the topics. Yep. Your videos are free. 
Yes, indeed. That is a unique selling point for medical students. I'm very impressed that uh, the the quality of the lectures. You mentioned uh, you figured out that you had kind of a talent for organizing the things you've learned and then uh, kind of uh, representing them in a easy to understand or a more memorable format. I listened to two of your OBGYN lectures, and then uh, my wife, who's a psych resident, we listened to two of the psych ones, and I thought to myself, wow, this is really, really, really relevant for a medical student. I, I was very impressed at how in 20 minutes you gave me a whole framework of thinking about, uh, for instance, abnormal uterine bleeding based on age groups. The level of understanding was perfect for a medical student preparing for their step two or an OBGYN clerkship. And I think that's probably the response you're seeing amongst users. I I noted on Reddit, you guys were mentioned, and uh, one guy said, I just got my step two score back, 264. All I used was online med ed lectures and UWorld, nothing better. And I would echo that as somebody with some expertise in obstetrics and gynecology. You do definitely have a talent for organization of content. And I think that's what makes lectures listenable that makes them interesting makes you want to sit there and invest your time i know i listened to golyan on repeat for about three months prior to my step one and i wish i had had something like your lectures um, to listen to because they kind of fill a gap in in terms of the clinical content that golyan meets with pathology specifically so bravo on that front well thank you yeah so what uh what else do you guys have? So you got free videos which I I think are excellent. What else? Yeah, so the videos are free and that was something that I told Jamie in the very beginning, right? Like if you're coming on to this, it can't be about making money, right? Because the thing that everyone else sells is the videos and the things that are always going to be free are the videos. And my buddies over in Silicon Valley were like, "Gate the videos. Make a lot of money. Gate the videos." And I'm like, "No. Our main mission has always been more education for more people for less. And that idea is free, right? So the videos exist on YouTube. When we host them, of course, they're like in our site. And the idea is anyone in the world, anywhere, the internet connection can learn at least the fundamentals. And so, of course, we have to, we are a company and we have to keep going. And I'm not that altruistic as to say I would sacrifice myself for medical students entirely. So we have... (laughs) So we have the, the, the premium content, right? So if you, if you wanted to come and watch the videos, they're free. But then we created other things that create an entire uh, learning system. And you mentioned a couple of the things in there that I, I do want to highlight. Yeah. Right? We've actually published a page, paper, uh, a PACE model, which is uh, prime, acquire, challenge, and force. And the idea is, first, understanding is more important than truth. Right. And so I, I'm glad you didn't mention any of the glaring OBGYN errors or the things that weren't technically correct, because at the third year level, it's black and white. That is an excellent point. And that's um, one of the things my wife and I were talking about listening to these. For instance, uh, in the uh, abnormal first abnormal uterine bleeding uh, or vaginal bleeding, I think the title is um, first lecture in that. I think there are three of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you broke down bleeding causes into essentially pre-puberty, reproductive age, and after menopause, and mentioned different management uh, strategies for severe cases. Now, as an OBGYN, I might not have gone exactly 
to where you did as your first step in management. However, as a student, if I were taking my step two or my OBGYN shelf, I would have gone exactly to where you went in your recommendations for treatment. And I think that's the point is, is in medical education on the boards. I say this a lot. The boards have to be black and white and medicine isn't. And in order to, I guess, achieve that sort of um, body of knowledge that is agreed upon and fixed, dynamic in one sense, but still uh, fixed in terms of it's not going to change from state to state or country to country, it's necessary to realize the limits of, of what a third year needs to know. That's exactly it, right? You went to OBGYN residency and you spent a couple of years learning that, huh, Dustin's video that's 20 minutes long may cover everything. Right. That's why your residency is four years long. Yeah. And maybe it's not exhaustive, I would say, but it doesn't need to be. Like, mm-hmm. that's the thing. People don't need to read William's Gynecology for their OBGYN shelf. There's just too much there. And for life, you might need to. You might need to be up on all that literature. I'm sure you have experienced the same thing uh, in internal medicine. You're not probably going to be able to do all the clinical work you need to do and take care of patients well by reading uh, Case Files Internal Medicine. (laughs) (laughs) But if you read Harrison's for your uh, internal medicine shelf, you probably wouldn't have done as well or have the potential to do as well had you just stuck to something like online med ed lectures or case files, internal medicine. That's exactly what it is, right? Understanding is more important than truth is the primary thing. But also forced timed repetition is also incredibly important, right? From the VARC analysis, we know that people learn different ways, you know, visual, audio, read, write, kinesthetic. And we've kind of mapped that onto our prime acquire challenge and force model. The idea is that no one learns one way. Everyone's visual. Everyone's audio unless you're blind or deaf right so i mean it means that like the way what we've done is we've sort of created this system where any one lesson should take you between an hour and two depending on your speed as a student Mm -hmm. where you read the notes which are at the same level as the video you're reading looking at our algorithms looking at the 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 charts then you watch the video to re and then you're already primed for what i'm going to say and then my voice makes it stick then you challenge yourself with some questions at the end multiple choice questions, you assembly vignettes, you have to interpret the vignette and essentially extrapolate the answer from what you've been taught. And then we have the quick tables, which is very much like a first aid, only it fits in your white coat, and then the flashback app. And the idea is forced timed repetition 48 hours after doing a topic, the flashcards become active. That's the time that we know from scientific research on on learning, that that's how you reinforce the knowledge the best. So to answer your question originally, what else do we have? The crap ton, right? The resources for learning are going to be the notes, which are effectively um, an eight and a half by 11, either one or two pages per lesson. The USMLE style questions, and there's about 1,300 of them, the quick tables and the flashcards. And so if you sign up as a paying subscriber, you get the videos plus all of that. And now we understand also that the technology is a great way to do this. And we're building a couple of other resources, um, sort of like a, a scheduler to help you get through your block. And we're going to com- come up with a couple of things for, for faculty. And I did, haven't mentioned this stuff like on the dashboard. You can keep track of how many questions you've done, how many you've gotten right, how many videos you've watched in a very elegant, um, color-coded way. You can figure out where your problem areas are and know where you need to go back and study. 
Yeah. So who should sign up for a premium subscription? Who, what student is going to get the most out of online med ed? Uh, every medical student ever. No, <laughs> Everybody no, but, says that when I ask, but right, uh, right. So, no. In in reality, what what I um what I tell people, some people come and ask, you know, they send emails like, "Hey, I've got a month to study for the USMLE. What should I get?" And I'm like, first aid in you world." And they're like, "Huh?" They're like, <laughs> yeah, like you you don't have enough time to do online med ed. I mean, like at, we have 220 lessons, and there's a video and notes and questions and flashcards and a quick table. It's like you're not going to have time to do it. Like you're just gonna you're gonna blitz through it. So the way we've created online med ed is for medical students to start third year, go through online med ed the entire way, and then on the other end, as you prepare for step two, you get some re- re- resource that everybody else uses, and you just blitz through it. So we actually have on our uh, resources tab um, study schedules. I mean, actually, I, I've written them out like explanations, not just like a calendar. Here's how you study for the shelf. Here's how you study for USMLE step two. Here's how you study. And the idea is we have a year plan and then a two-month step two plan, a three-month step two plan. The type of person who should sign up for the premium content is legitimately every medical student who's entering third year. Because if you watch the videos, read the notes, do the questions, you're going to get the benefit of all those other resources, even if you only pick the one you like. But what I tell people is, if you watch one of my videos and you're like, I really connect with this guy. I learned from him. Sign up. If you're like, uh, this is kind of hokey. I don't really like it. Don't sign up because the rest of the content is going to be very much me. Like I've written it and written it all. Anyone can benefit. Um, but the person who's going to use this is going to, for the best, is going to be someone who's willing to dedicate a, a lot more time than they think to studying medicine despite being in clinicals. We've made this very efficient, but you still have to put in the time. The person who should not pay for the extra stuff is someone who already has another resource they like, and they just want to use the videos to kind of get an overview. Well, that's fair. I appreciate that that honesty. Um, I mean, it makes sense. There's, you know, 100,000 or so medical students in the United States, Canada, etc. Right. So, there's a lot of there's a lot to go around and probably each company is going to I guess fit one student better than another but there are certain quintessential components I think that that make learning um better and certainly high quality board focused shelf exam focused step 2 focused lectures are going to be a piece of that and um I think you guys are definitely filling that niche um with excellence and and even your study plans are free. I just logged into the dashboard and mm-hmm. uh put up uh the step 2 2 month prep and it's simple digestible and I think I could get through this if I had 2 months to study for my step 2 and I was also on a rotation at the same time. You you provide a plan. You provide yes. a plan, right? We are very focused in students doing well, not us making money, right? So like a lot of a lot of the stuff we just give away. And I mean, that's probably why everyone should use us. Like our primary motivator here is that students do well. And actually, when I built this, it was to help medical students do better. It was also to say, uh, can I swear? Uh, sure. I'm, I'm going to beep it out, though, because I don't. <laughs> yeah, do it. Okay. It's fine. All right. The USMLE, I think it's a stupid test, and and that's what everybody who is looking at 
from residency at students uses to value a measure of the quality of person. If everybody just does well in the USMLE, then it will stop being a test that people can you know, judge people on. And then the third thing was I wanted to cripple corporate education, right? The, these predatory companies that come in and say, if you don't have us, you're going to fail and everyone's going to beat, beat you. Give us $1,000 for three months. I mean, this actually happened, and I'm not going to say the competitor's name. I don't want to put people down. But there was a company that came in to the class after mine at Tulane and literally got up there and said, if you don't use us, you will not get into your residency of, choo of choosing. And all 180 students at Tulane in that class got that resource. <laughs> Fear-based marketing. But basically, like with that story, it was... There are companies out there who are trying to make money, who are preying on medical students, not helping them. But those resources do work, right? So then there's this unfair advantage that people with a bunch of money to throw around have over students who are just trying to go to medical school paying $60,000 already. So we created this thing to be good education, extremely low cost, and to sort of beat out those things that cause anxiety in medical school, predatory corporate education, fear of not passing the test and the absence of really good medical education. That's awesome. Well, thanks, Dustin, for um, taking your time and sharing uh, some of your wisdom and a little bit about the story of online med ed. You guys should check out onlinemeded.org, watch the free videos and sign up for a premium subscription. And actually, the kind folks there, thank you, um, have offered one student who leaves a review of the podcast and sends us a screenshot to info at Inside the Boards a three-month subscription to their premium resource with a free t-shirt. Does it have the cat on it? It does. Perfect. It's got the cat on it and an intern guide. So send your screenshot after leaving your review to info at Inside the Boards, and you'll be entered for this episode's contest. Thanks, Dustin. I really appreciate it. Uh, my pleasure, Patrick. I'd like to thank Tom DeLong and the band Angels and Airwaves for providing music for this week's show. The tune is Flight of Apollo off Angels and Airwaves' album Love Part 1. Check out Angels and Airwaves at angelsandairwaves.com. Inside the Boards is in no way affiliated with the United States Medical Licensing Exam, Comprehensive Osteopathic Medical Licensing Exam, National Board of Medical Examiners, the National Council of State Boards of Nursing, or National Board of Osteopathic Medical Examiners. All exam names and other trademarks are the property of the respective trademark owners. Content discussed during this program is the property of Inside the Boards, the attributed trademark owner, and may not be reproduced without permission from the appropriate entity. Inside the Boards fully adheres to the respective policies on irregular behavior outlined by the aforementioned credentials bodies.